welcome on The Barricades. This is a podcast produced by Eastern European journalists and academics. This is your host, Maria Cernat, and with me, as usual, we have Veronica Salminem, a researcher from the Czech Republic and also a journalist and activist. And uh, she joined us today to discuss European Union and, as usual, Boyan Stanislavski, the co-host of our show. Thank you both for being here with us. Hello. So we are discussing today a very important topic. I want to make sure that our viewers understand that what they are going to hear is a lot of criticism of the European Union. But we do this because we like the project, not that because we want to tear it down. Since we uh, see, mainly in the mainstream press, only two types of discourses, one that praises the European Union, that lionizes the European project, and one that criticizes and demonizing the European Union, what we try to present here is a way out of this. So uh, this is why we invited Veronica. She conducted a research recently uh, called Mapping the Political Economy of the European Union Peripheries, where she talks a lot about uh, inequality, about uh, the periphery, what is a periphery, what are the peripheries of the European Union, and what is the way out? What is a way to get closer to the European Union ideals such as they are presented to us most of the time. So first of all, uh, I was impressed when you made a presentation for the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation, because this is one of the founders of your research, Veronica, and you told a very important thing, and that is that mostly countries like Romania, Bulgaria, and other countries in the European peripheries don't have don't even have their uh, banks, uh, money, capital to invest. And this is why their economy depends a lot on decisions that are taken elsewhere. So I want you to elaborate a little bit on, on that. Yes, uh, thank you for invitation. Uh, I will try uh, quickly uh, to develop on it. First of all, I would like to say that this project is still ongoing and we will present the results in the spring, during the spring. And it is project co-financed by Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung and Transform Europe. We are three researchers uh, from uh, Europe peripheries, meaning from the South and East, who are working on this project in a comparative way. Yes, what I was uh, telling uh, in the in the begin uh, in the presentation uh, in um, it was in December, and that was that one of the most important, uh, let's say, uh, features or characteristic of the economic models, because we are interested in economic models, which you can you can find in Europe peripheries. In the, by the way, it's uh, very similar in the south, like in the eastern wing of European Union, is that we are dependent on, on uh, external capital, uh, mostly on FDIs, uh, that's uh, foreign direct investment, and then on the uh, foreign capital, uh, which is usually medi mediated through the foreign owned banks. And if you look on this evolution, if you look why in the region of uh, Central Eastern Europe or Central East Europe, meaning the Central Eastern Europe, which is part of European Union, not the other states, 
why it is uh, so much dependent on the on the uh, outside capital and why the banks are in so high percentage owned by foreigner owners and i would like to underline that comparatively our region meaning the central east europe is on the top of the world in the ownership of of um, of banks by foreigner owners it's over 80 percent usually 80 to 90 percent so uh, one of the reasons why it is so it's unfortunately that uh, integration process to the european union that it was actually one of the things which european union was specially asking from these states that they would uh, deregulate and they would privatize uh, privatize the banking system after during the transformation and during the accession to the European Union. And unfortunately, the result, there was not said that we have to sell it to the foreigner, of course, capital, but uh, the result of this um, was that uh, the banking system as a whole is basically owned by uh, mainly Western banks and the economies in Central East Europe are not uh, having enough of own capital. They are dependent on the on the capital from outside we can elaborate on it more but you can understand that for example in the time of financial crisis uh, in 2008-9 this was a big issue um yes uh, i suppose it was a very big issue now uh, i want to discuss uh, a little bit how this uh, european project is presented because here in romania we are we were extremely enthusiastic um about joining the eu I mean, there were no discussions, unfortunately, on the real and concrete steps to be taken. And there was no balanced discussion because mostly Romanians thought of the European Union as the civilized West and it's... um, it was presented and people saw it as a way for us Easterners to get access and to somehow get closer to the centers of power and wealth. And it was not a critical discussion, especially in uh, Romania. So I want to go now to Ben and ask if in Poland you had that type of discussion. And I'm asking it this particularly because I know in Poland you had uh, even the idea that you might go out of the European Union. And we saw Kaczynski taking some steps and the law and uh, justice party uh, taking some steps against, so to speak, the European Union, of course, only in the area of the sexual minorities, but nevertheless. Yeah, let me begin by dismissing this theory that, uh, that had gone viral a couple of weeks, maybe over two months ago, uh, about allegedly looming poll exit that's what they call the process of poland uh, allegedly attempting or the polish government allegedly attempting to withdraw from the european union structures uh, this was an absolute humbug from the very beginning and uh, you know myself and on our program and and elsewhere in my articles i, I was you know i was crying to uh, trying to explain that this uh, makes no sense this theory because uh, first of all, the the Polish government is way too small and way uh, too uh, well. It's not an influential government. That's what I'm trying to say. It's not a government that can take its own decisions without for without the approval of uh, of the Western powers. 
So uh, I guess it speaks to the question of the sovereignty uh, that uh, Veronica briefly described uh, by referring to the banking system, because how can you have any kind of sovereignty when you don't have uh, any sort of independent monetary policy and when you don't uh, have enough capital in order to make uh, public investments to the extent at least that it would allow some kind of uh, some kind of independence. But uh, regarding the question of uh, discussing be before and after the in, uh, Poland entering the European Union, no, unfortunately, uh, the last 30 years, uh, in my opinion, at least that's my observation, have, uh, uh, have, have been the period when something called the public debate has been terribly downgraded and uh, there were no... There was no critical discussion. I would say that there was no no substantial discussion about anything, let alone uh, critical. Uh, in terms of the European Union, I can remember that very well. I, I can remember the referendum and all the rest of it. And it was exactly uh, the, the whole discussion, the debate, quote unquote, went along the lines that you just described. I mean, there were people who were hyperventilating over their excitement that we're going to now become part of the West. And I have to admit, I have to confess that, uh, that unfortunately, uh, I was one of those naive people who thought that, yes, now, you know, we are joining the, 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 the conglomeration of the civilized nations of Western Europe. And now things are, and, and from that moment on, things are going to change for the better for everyone and that we are going to live a be better lives. And to some extent, actually, it proved to be correct in Poland, because Poland, uh, the Polish politicians, whatever we, however we want to you know, describe them today or however we want to evaluate their legacy, they did actually make certain, uh, uh, well, certain tough talks with the European Union before Poland joining uh, that organi organization. Now, that's another question, by the way, is it a state? Is it an organization? What is it actually? Because, you know, it issues its own passports, it's got its own citizenship and so on. It's got its central bank, but Perhaps we're going to go to that a little later in our program, but anyway, Poland did join that, and and there was like the, those were the, there were those pro-Western, uh, pro whatever, pro-European Union people who had no idea, of course, what it actually means to join that European Union, but they wanted to have their hype, their their emotions somehow covered by by the fact that Poland joins the European Union, and they thought like myself at the time, that things were going to get better. And then we had those that were against that, which were mostly nationalists and people that at the time used to be in, you know, somewhere on the fringes of the political life in Poland. Uh, it's only now that they became, that they started to matter, thanks to law and justice. <clears throat> that is the Catholic fundamentalist party that's been ruling in Poland since 2015. That, that that had uh, that, that that was involved, you know, that has been inviting them, so to say, uh, those people, those hardliners, right-wing hardliners, nationalists that used to be on the fringes of the political life now into the mainstream. But at the time, their, their, uh, you know, their arguments were like, you know, we're losing sovereignty or we're going to be giving up uh, our sovereignty and, you know, uh, we're not going to be an independent country. Uh, the kind of, you know, nationalistic mantra, which means pretty much nothing, because today when you come to think about it, Rationally, just rationally, uh, how can Poland, being independent, uh, how could Poland possibly compete, I don't know, with Germany or, or I don't know, with Japan or China or, or Russia or the United States, you know, in terms of economic, uh, you know, economic market mechanisms, of course, it couldn't. Same goes for Bulgaria and for other small countries of the, uh, of the former Eastern Bloc, but same goes also for many countries in the Europe's West. So I think that the question of whether, which, by the way, I want to refer to that, uh, to your introduction, Maria, because you said that, you know, we like the project 
And that's why we're criticizing it and we want to change it and we want to see a better European Union. And of course, I would like to see a better European Union, but the question of liking something or not liking is a secondary question and should always be a secondary question in politics, in my opinion, because this is, you know, I, I don't, I'm not a great fan of the European Union, but I'm not for withdrawing from the European Union because I'm, I'm, I'm also kind of trying to be realistic and materialistic, okay? Not live in the world of dreams, like where Poland is, I don't know, uh, independent and, and as I said, uh, earlier competes you know actively with uh, major uh, economic and political centers of power so uh, I, I do want uh, I, I do feel that we should stay in the European Union I do feel we should take uh, some some uh, steps in order to improve that but I think that it lies the responsibility for that lies in the hands of the leaders of the European left and and they should be uh, you know uh, they should be coming up with ideas and, and programs and, and, and concrete and specific steps as to how to actually change that. And that would, of course, uh, that would, of course, mean a public debate and a lot of public debate on uh, where do we want to go with this. Because you also said, Maria, in your introduction that we're, we're going to try and, and put forward some concept uh, concepts as to how do we want to change the European Union. I have no idea how do we want to change the European Union, really, because I'm I, it, when it comes to the question of reforming the European Union, I personally, personally myself, I don't really have a solid opinion whether it is reformable or not. I wish that it, it, it is. Uh, but honestly speaking, without a profound democratization of the European Union, uh, I don't quite see if, if we can really, I don't quite see how we can get uh, things on any better track than they are uh, right now. But as you, as you quite rightly pointed out, there was no public debate in Bulgaria or in Poland, at least, you know, the, the two debates that I witnessed before those countries entered the European Union. And there is no uh, there is no proper debate now, like in in terms of what is the legacy of our of those countries being part of the European Union for uh, you know since two thousand and four for Poland and since two thousand and seven or eight for Bulgaria, and you know for Poland as I said certain things uh, have gotten better many many investments were made uh, but you know in in, in terms of uh, in in the case of Bulgaria for example things are much more controversial I would say because the European Union has obviously done ex well has done pretty much nothing okay i was going to say zero but that wouldn't be uh, wouldn't be true so it has done pretty much nothing and the european union has been feeding pocket money to the oligarchy ruling bulgaria at the moment for the last uh, you know 12 13 years right uh, in the form of european european funds uh, and and uh, agricultural subsidies uh, suffice to say that uh, 80% of the eu subsidies that are dedicated to the Bulgarian agriculture are consumed by five families. Now, if I know that, then in Brussels, they know that for sure. So uh, I think that a lot depends on uh, the European Union's or maybe on Germany's approach to different countries. Germany's approach to Poland is different than uh, than the approach to, uh, I don't know, Bulgaria or, or I don't know, Hungary for that matter, uh, or Czech Republic. And I'm sure Veronica could tell us more about that. So uh, this is... Uh, this is a, a, this is a very difficult, I would say, situation where we cannot really uh, put forward any any talking points, leftist talking points, because they just drown in this uh, in in this discussion, which leads us nowhere. Like between nationalists and some Lib Dems, which which both of both of those sides have pretty much no understanding of what they're actually talking about. When I said we like the European Union, I, of course, didn't refer to feelings, but I referred to a rational decision that is based on 
the evaluation of the ideals that they put forward. And of course, uh, one of the basic ideas is that uh, mutual exchange and usually when people get in contact and they have economic interests, then the likelihood of work goes down. I mean, it's less likely to see people going to work when they have common interests uh, in economy. Now, what I would like to ask Veronica now is to explain what was the situation in the Czech Republic. Because let me tell you again that in Romania, we had a, a hype. We had such enthusiasm related to the European Union. And we actually thought that we were going to live at least as the top 1% rich people in the European Union once we join. I mean, there was we were living in a fantasy uh, world. So, and I felt the need, Boyan, to tell that we like the European Union because especially in Romania, the discourse is so polarized that once you start to advance even the, the tiniest criticism related to the European Union, you are suddenly demonized. And this is why I felt the need to tell our viewers that we want to move beyond that and to explain that uh, especially when uh, you decide something is good for you and your country you want to make it better and this is why you criticize it right so what was it like in the uh, in the czech uh, republic uh, veronica uh, i have to say it was very same like in romania or poland uh, and by the way in slovakia it was also very same uh, this was uh, the all the 90s basically the predominant uh, narrative was so-called return to Europe. Uh, you probably had it also. It was quite powerful discourse, which was uh, connected with the European Union, and which was connected with expectation from the membership uh, that it will somehow, uh, and this is interesting, I think, that it will somehow save us against ourselves from outside, you know, that they, we, they will solve our problems. By the way, I was quite um, uh, surprised, even it's quite logic, when I looked at the South European countries, the core of South European countries, when entering to the European Union after authoritarian period, meaning Greece, Spain and Portugal, in these countries, it was very same. They also believed that they will be uh, saved by the integration in that time to econom uh, European economic community and that the external, external forces will somehow transform there. Uh, in our case, in the case of, of Central East uh, Europe, this was done by the belief in imitation. This was an um, imitational paradigm that uh, basically the, the European Union will create us this program, this great program, we will follow these steps for example, privatize uh, banks, uh, but there were many other steps. Uh, there were, you know, like rule of law and, and um, uh, fulfill democracy, able to compete on the single market and so on and so on. And if we will follow all these steps, we will become them. We will be as the core. Uh, we were, of course, not interested at that time how is the situation, let's say, in southern Italy, in, in Sicilia or uh, how is situation in Portugal. Uh, we were believing that we will become like Germany, you know, at least in Czech Republic. Czechia is, uh, as you know, country, I think in Poland it, will be, Poland, it will be pretty same. Like the model societies in Germany, there is the starting the West for us. And so we believed, and our politicians were even promising us uh, that this will happen. Uh, there were politicians who were claiming that in some one decade, uh, the Czech salaries will reach the salaries of the 
Austria, uh, Austrian salaries, uh, which was which is pretty ridiculous because uh, now we know that we have less than 40% of these salaries after 30 years of transformation. And they were telling it at the moment when they uh, on purpose put the Czechoslovakian salaries in the early 1990s. Czechoslovakian salaries were artificially put down to be only 10% of German salaries at that moment in order to be quickly internationalized and compete on the market. It was connected with the situation which was in Poland, same, which was same in in in, uh, in uh, all uh, all uh, com Comecon countries. It means this uh, Soviet system countries which were part of Comecon. Uh, there was the quick uh, demand to quickly start to export to the to the Western markets now. And one of the way you didn't have technology, you didn't have too much, uh, you know, these things which were uh, important. So one of the way was uh, to start to put the salaries down in order to have cheap exports. And this is something, by the way, which is a pattern which is continuing until today. We cannot jump out of this train. We jumped in this train in early 1990s and we are continuing in this train. So there was a lot of era, uh, I think, uh, absolutely kind of illusions, building on illusions, building on imitation, believing that outside forces will solve our problems for ourselves. And now there is a lot of disappointment, disappointment, a frustration connected with it because things changed, but they didn't change how, how people expected. Rather, new problems appeared. And I would interpret this uh, lame discussion during the 1990s and until now with the fact that as a one huge problem of public debates in the Central East Europe is that we don't like to speak about power inequalities. We don't like to speak about power at all. As you can see in foreign political ex, uh, discourses very much that we, we, be, we behave sometimes, Poland behaves by the way such a way, but even Czech Republic, even Slovakia, we behave like we would be United States nearly because we are allies of United States. Or now let me put me an example of Lithuania, which is now in very anti-Chinese course, doesn't realize that China has much more bigger power and it is now beating the economy because China started block their production, uh, block their ex exports from China to Lithuania. So we don't like to speak about power. We don't like to speak about uh, that there is core and periphery, that there is dependency, that there are those who have more powerful uh, instruments to uh, determine things and we don't have this. So this is one of the things which I think is, is connected with this discourses uh, besides the illusions which were maybe logic you know in 1990s problem is that our uh, liberal democrats these days because they are defensive now so they are repeating the same like it's kind of like very funny when in the beginning of 21st century with the totally different problems after the global crisis which was the really like uh, organic crisis of, of the global uh, global capitalism and now you are returning back to 1990s and do some kind of retro uh, we have now new government in the czech republic that they are like Václav havel you know all this time but this is this time is gone this is this is uh, this is lost this is something that doesn't make sense anymore uh, and uh, that's why we do this project, because one of the things which we want to show is that there is different distribution of power. And unfortunately, if you are on the periphery, you have less power to influence your own policies and you are basically uh, dependent in many things on the decision somewhere else.
Well, I know you, you conducted the, this research on the peripheries and we discussed because from your presentation, I got this very important idea related to money, basically, <laughs> because we don't have our own capital. But I'm pretty sure that you were able to identify other power structures and mechanisms that basically made Europe an inegalitarian place where you have center and periphery. And if we, you were to list three out of those important mechanisms that uh, structurally make the European Union look like the way it looks today with center, semi-peripheries and peripheries, what would those be? Well, this is a difficult question. I hope I will uh, answer it. Uh, first, first thing, which is, I think, very important is that is competition what is i think killing the european union project which we all of us believe is uh, that it is it is um based on idea of convergence and on idea of solidarity so unfortunately the there is also idea of competition uh, recently, I noticed there was even some like quotation of Angela Merkel, the former chancellor of Germany, who said that uh, the competition and solidarity is the same as, you know, different side of same coin in the European Union. But unfortunately, I don't agree with her. I think that competition is killing the European Union. So competition mechanism, which are based on the capitalist of course, logic on, on the logic of neoliberal globalization these days. Uh, this is something which is, I think, very much contributing in creation of unequal conditions in different uh, peripheries. And of course, it is giving advantages to to the core, to the core countries like Germany, Netherlands, uh, France, partly uh, Benelux and these, these strong economies uh, which you have in the core of the European Union. So competition is very important. Um, in the research, we will show uh, that Central East European uh, models, economic models, can be called as competition states. And competition state is a state which is really in uh, social eco uh, policy, but also in economic policy, of course, relying on the uh, competition uh, to attract foreign direct investments from outside. And uh, this competition is usually based on the idea of competition to the bottom, because you are competing, you know, with uh, with the among themselves. So in the let's say in where four countries, Visegrad four, you hear a lot of things in the mainstream media how they are cooperating together. Well, uh, let me see. This is not true. These countries are for decades uh, competing against each other in the competition rise to the bottom in uh, attracting the foreign investments uh, and uh, they are this you can see perfectly for example if you look on the corporate taxation on the corporate tax or other conditions for the transnational corporations so competition go is going within the regions within these weak peripheries economically weak but it is also running through the between south and east very much, uh, which is creating, of course, polarization. And it is one of the obstacles to cooperate, I think, very well, because in the South, they see us as competitors. Uh, by the way, competition also means that you don't compete only within the European Union. 
If you look, for example, at the transnational corporation policy in last uh, 15 years, approximately, there is research done uh, by Eurofond about it. If you look on uh, offshoreization, meaning uh, going out of the European Union, uh, and of course, reoffshoreization, you can see that biggest amount of transnational corporation leaving the region, our region, goes to China. So we are basically competing with China with even lower uh, lower, you know, it's uh, next social damping. Uh, they, they, they put us against the Western, against the core, because a lot of uh, firms went east because of cheap labor and better conditions. And now basically this is happening to us and the competitor is China. So competition is one of the, I think, most important mechanisms to understand. I really, it became to be key uh, for the economic model in the in the eastern part of uh, European Union and within the European Union because this belief in competition is in general as you know it's one of the most important I think feature of neoliberalism compete individually compete between states compete 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 so competition is one of them uh, then uh, then probably next thing which is necessary to say that it is capitalism so uh, basically the, the the fact that you have capitalist system uh, you have to count with that capitalist system is producing inequalities and it is it is basically if you look at the history of capitalism how it was uh, geographically and social developing you can see that it always was having core and peripheries uh, and uh, this uneven um, development uh, so that's uh, i think uh, <laughs> Unfortunately, European Union says it's market economy based, right? The social market is already f f f forgotten. Uh, so it's it's basically the fact that this is how how the capital how how the European Union is run. And third, I think you can say it's the neoliberal globalization, which because we you cannot speak about European Union today without understanding the wider context. And European Union itself, it's not island. It's not able to uh, to isolate from the world. So uh, here you go also that basically you have you have a course within the global system. If you look on the global system, of course, European Union and countries like Czech Republic, Poland are not not peripheries in the global system. They are semi peripheries, definitely. So you have to. That's why we speak about Euro peripheries uh, to make the difference. We speak within the European Union. Then you have global system. So the global capitalism, uh, global and the way how neoliberalism is uh, interpreting capitalism specifically, I think is the next very important engine for the creation of uh, of the. Uh, pol polarization between current periphery in the European Union and for the problems which European Union is is uh, facing these days. Well, this is very interesting. If you were to think of the factors that helps or maybe Polish politicians to negotiate in a tougher way with the European Union, Boyan, what would those be? I want, I mean, I know in Romania, we got nothing. I mean, we never had in three decades and we never had uh, after we joined the European Union, no politician to negotiate something with the European Union. We had mostly some debates uh, against gay marriage. Of course, when cracking down on sexual minorities, 
This is where Romania and Romanian politicians find it best to show that they are sovereign. I mean, and this is so ridiculous if you think about it. But this is it. But you said that, uh, on the contrary, uh, politicians in Poland uh, had some tough talks. And I want you to elaborate a little bit on that, especially for our viewers to see that even coming from the Eastern Europe, it is possible to do that. You don't have to stay in your knees all the time and hope that just by entering some sort of uh, magic uh, land of the European Union, things are going to unfold perfectly. So if you care to elaborate a little bit on that and give us some examples. First of all, I want to say that it pays, it never pays off to be on your knees and to beg and, and plead, because if you do that, then no one takes you seriously, particularly in politics. And politics is, whether we like it or not, is a game of fear, mostly. So uh, if you sort of offer yourself that way, then, uh, you know, there's no way that you won't be kicked by pretty much everyone. Okay. So uh, that, of course, uh, doesn't mean that you can always do whatever you like. And I think this is, uh, this is what rational politicians should understand and rational act activists should acknowledge that uh, to be, you know, a statesman, so to say, in the conditions that we are in right now. And they are not very favorable for us, to say the least, because it's neoliberalism, it's capitalism, it's all kinds of stuff that Veronica spoke about. And I totally agree with her. You know, we have to find our way. In, in a sense, we have to be able, our political elites, political class, however you want to refer to that, should be capable enough, okay, to find their own way. Because if you, as you say, <clears throat> do in as it was done in Romania or as it was done in, in in Bulgaria or as it is done okay in a sense that we just we're just there and and we fully align ourselves with whatever the European Union wants from us and then you know create some hype for a purpose of domestic politics about gay marriage or, or whatever right like things which don't really matter from the point of view of the well-being of society overall I mean uh, so, uh, yeah, it's, um, you, you know, on the other hand, we had in, in, in the nineties, in the late nineties, we had in Bulgaria, uh, this, um, prime minister, Jean Vidinov, uh, who was taken down by, from what I gather was the first colored revolution in our region in 1996, 1997. Uh, he was taken down precisely because he thought he could assert himself in a very aggressive manner against Russia, against the West, against American stuff. But obviously, I, like this tactic doesn't work either. And then we come to this rational conclusion, okay, that we have to find our way between the interests of the big powers and we have to calculate very carefully what pays off now, what pays off later, what pays off in a, in a longer perspective, in a shorter perspective. Unfortunately, we don't have that. And we don't have that not because, uh, you know, we are stupid, but because the political class, you know, that... that, that that developed over, I don't know, the last 100 and 150 years in our countries has not really, uh, has never had this training, has never had this experience, has never gone through the same historical process. That's why, you know, we, we kind of, uh, even without knowing that or without without sort of acknowledging that actively in our societies, we were joining the West, we were joining the European Union 
as uh, you know with a sense of being a bit of a pariah with a sense of being slightly handicapped and so on and so forth and you know it did have a logic some kind of foundation maybe not necessarily logic in the 90s as veronica pointed out but today things have changed and i don't quite see why we have to still be stuck in the 90s and why we can't you know just assert ourselves for uh you know taking into consideration all the factors that are in place right now and all the processes that are playing themselves out right now and in terms of the question in in terms of the polish politicians negotiating a little harder well you see that was again that was that, that wasn't really so much the question of how the polish politicians were were, were allegedly i don't know smarter than the bulgarian politicians but the situation was different in a sense you know Poland was among the first countries to be accepted in the European Union from the former Eastern Bloc, okay? So, uh, you know, the European Union was prepared to give more concessions at the time. That was, uh, you know, long before uh, the uh, Great Recession, okay? Uh, and, and Bulgaria was pretty much accepted bulgaria and romania they were pretty much accepted during those times already okay because the great recession started in approximately 2007 so you know the conditions were different and those people that were negotiating on the on the part of poland they you know the european union uh was was able to give them some concessions and to to give them the the opportunity to play some theatrics for their own uh you know domestic politics purposes to sort of play play the game of being tough with the West and tough for the nation that they represent. That was possible back then, okay, in the beginning uh, of the of the century. But it wasn't possible at the very beginning, I mean, and it wasn't possible a few years later when the when the crisis has actually begun. So you know, uh, it's 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 only the question of the circumstances surrounding those negotiations that were there. And 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 you know, of course for Poland it was better in a sense that the Polish, the Polish agriculture was pretty much saved by the European Union. And we should also be able to acknowledge that, no matter how critical we are of the model that the European Union is exercising. Because had it not been, we were on, Poland was on the verge of peasant, you know, peasant uh, uh, kind of revolution almost. Okay, we had movements and parties and road blockades and strikes and all kinds of stuff. And the, and then, you know, Right before joining the EU, Poland had unemployment rate of about 18% officially. Unofficially, it was probably even higher. So, you know, the moment we entered the European Union, the, the, the system, at least in Poland, was able to let off some steam because people started emigrating massively. Uh, to the countries where the uh, that opened the, Euro the the labor market for migrant workers and uh, huge subsidies. Uh, started to flow into Poland uh, for the purpose of uh, reforming the agriculture and restructuring the agriculture and so on and so forth. But you know, let's let's you know, let us have no illusions about that. Okay, those those measures, uh, the acceptance of Poland in and other former Eastern Bloc countries in the European Union was not done because they wanted, you know, to save us from ourselves and, you know, all those things that you, Veronica, and you, Maria, uh, you know, uh, referred to. It was done because it just paid off for those countries like France and Germany and, and you know, other, the core, okay? It just paid off because, look, 
we can speak uh, about the banking system. We can speak about how we mimic their uh, privatization models, how we've done other things without thinking much whether it makes sense to do that uh, in, in, in Poland, Bulgaria, Czech Republic or wherever in Eastern Europe. But also, you know, the very the, the bottom line here is that there's an ideological thing behind this, the, the, the whole uh, notion and concept, which is that you know the core knows that we are the periphery and refers to us and thinks about us as the periphery in other words it thinks about us and perceives us in a very humiliating way because and this is one of the things which basically people start to to realize now and because mm-hmm. they, they they cannot really have any proper manifestation of this they are looking for rehabilitation by voting for nationalist parties uh, like law and justice in Poland for example which promises them that Poland is going to rise on its feet from its knees and so on and so forth mm-hmm. nothing like this is happening but this is the the talk and 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 you know look look at what is happening now Bulgaria for example just you know Bulgaria is now importing everything that it used to export until 1989 or until the early 90s. Bulgaria used to have, and it's, I know it's difficult to believe, but it used to be an industrial country with a lot of scientific institutions in Bulgaria. Was, Bulgaria was one, a unique place, used to be a unique place where we had technology that was only available in Japan and the Silicon Valley. We used to have our astronauts, we used to have industry and all the rest of it, but we all, we had all those engineers, all those scientists, which are now working in Berlin, in Amsterdam, in Paris, in Madrid, and, and in Italian town, uh, cities and so on and so forth. So, you, you know, and, and, and our, our workers, those that are referred to as unqualified workers, you know, I don't understand this why is this uh really so because most of them have qualifications and they have high qualifications uh and and high skills okay sometimes people use the phrase unskilled workers they are very skilled the problem is that you know those skilled workers are now migrating to western europe and have been migrating for the last uh 13 years massively to the extent that the bulgarian society was drained of the 30 percent of its population which, you know, never happened even in war times. And we are what? We are doing what? Sorry, we're, we're, we're changing the, the diapers of their elderly people. We're changing the diapers of their babies. We're cleaning their hotels. We're washing dishes in their restaurants. This is the role that the West has designed for us. And I don't have any problem with being per- in the periphery. I, I, I just take an issue with us be, with, with the role for us being designed that way. I don't want to be that. And and most of the people that live in our countries, they don't want to be this. They don't want to be the butlers of the West. And this is why we should have, of course, solidarity in place. But unfortunately, we don't have solidarity. We have competition. And Angela Merkel can, you know, if Angela Merkel claims, I've, I've never heard that claim. I've never came, come across this. But, you know, when Angela Merkel claims that competition and solidarity is the same thing or i don't know two sides of the same coin mm-hmm. she's either extremely ignorant and doesn't know what she's talking about or she's uh, lying and manipulating now to assume that she's an ignorant person after having been for 15 years the chancellor of germany would be somewhat discourteous of me so i will just assume that she's lying and manipulating and i think that for the west for the core 
is the high time, particularly after Brexit, to take this into consideration, whether they want to change their attitude, their, poli uh, their policies towards the east or towards the, the periphery, okay, or not. Because if they don't, if they just continue, uh, you know, double down, doubling down on this, then, you know, Brexit will just be the beginning. Well, this uh, concludes the first part of our show regarding the European Union. In the second segment, we'll have more concrete discussions related to agriculture, subsidies, migration, and all the other things that structure the European Union in a very unequal way and unfair, to say the least, while promoting the ideas and ideals of solidarity that people find very appealing. Healing. So thank you both very much. Uh, thanks uh, our viewers for watching. I urge each and every one to support us because uh, you are our uh, hope in terms of support. Please go to patreon.com slash the barricade, become our Patreon, subscribe to our channel. This concludes the first part of the show, but we'll see each other in the second part where we discuss, as I told you, specific topics like agriculture. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.